You know, just in terms of the power of music too, one of my good friends, Stan Tatkin, who is a marriage therapist in Los Angeles, um, he studies a lot about neurobiology and attachment and the ways that our brains are wired to connect and what gets in the way in terms of um, how do our brains get dysregulated so that we end up detaching from ourselves and others and then also what helps even at kind of a brain level functioning help us be open to love and forgiveness and attachment. And one of the things that he does whenever a couple comes in for their first session and it's a highly conflictual couple. It's a couple that you can just kind of feel the ice as they walk in the room. And they're sitting on the couch and they, they are so far apart from each other. And you can just cut the tension with a knife. These, these are people in a lot of pain, a lot of anger, a lot of hurt. He'll pull out his iPod. This is the first thing he'll do. He'll say, tell me, what was the song? What was your song? Did you have a song when you were falling in love? What was your song? and he pulls it up on his iPod, and he says, I just want to start by listening to this. And so as they sit there, they listen to this piece of music that holds all these emotions of when they were falling in love. And literally, things begin to shift in the brain. And so they're able to begin their session in an enormously different place than if they had not listened to that music. So the power of music to open us up to being contacted and, and touched by God and each other is so huge. Laura, could you mention his name again? Stan Tatkin, T-A-T-K-I-N. And if you Google him, he's written a book called, I think, I'm trying to think, um, it has the title Love and, Love and War. It's something about intimacy and how quickly we shift from love and you know how quickly that is when you're someone you're really close to, but they can become your enemy in a split second. Like, what is that? That's what he, he looks at that a lot in intimate relationships. Um, well, I just wanted to say I've had a marvelous day and I've had so many interesting conversations with many of you about interest you have in spiritual formation, what you're doing in your own congregations. And I just wanna give all of you a word of tremendous encouragement that there is a lot of bad news about what's happening in the church as a whole and in the Presbyterian church sometimes specifically, and you're in it and you live in it, but there's a lot of life happening. You know, there's a lot of creativity. There's a lot of beauty coming out of what can feel like the ashes at times. You know, when the whole thing gets dismantled, sometimes that gives room for people that couldn't have had a voice at another time to begin to have an alternate idea of what it means to be the church. And that is one thing, and I would like, if anyone has any ideas about this, please come find me afterwards. One thought that goes through my mind from time to time is maybe spiritual formation always is going to happen on the margins. I wonder if spiritual formation is ever going to be in the very center of the church. Or will that always be something that is more on the margins, something that not everybody ever wants to step into. And so, I don't know, it's just a question. I'd love to hear some other thoughts about that. Um, I got mail today at lunch. <laughs> and I was trying this afternoon to come up with a clever response from Dale and Kathy Bruner. And I worked on it like way too long. <laughs> and then even when I finished it, I thought, Laura, what are you doing? You're gonna give them more fodder. <laughs> so. I took Ian's words to heart when he said, I think he called it misguided enthusiasm. So thank you, Ian. 
um, I decided to let that go, and maybe I, I will... Uh, no, 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 I'll really... No, it, I'm into vulnerability and risk, but not that much, so... No, I, I literally even went over my notes for tonight kind of obsessing, like, okay, what are they going to pick up on? And how can I make it really flat and boring so there's nothing there? No. Um, I also worked, thanks to my friend Bill Goff, a little bit more on my definition of spiritual formation, which I have written down, but I'm never happy with the definition. I, don't, I never like titling talks. I don't like titling sermons. I don't like defining things. I'm a way over to the NP on the Myers-Briggs. But I did work some more, and these are just five components. That's as, that's as close as I think I'm going to come, Bill, and you're probably not going to be satisfied, but that in my mind, spiritual formation is a lifelong process. It's something that we will never stop being involved in if we choose to, that we are invited into a lifelong process of being conformed into the image of Christ, which is our true self. For the sake of others, it's not, as I said last night, to become like a Christian Navy SEAL. It's not about spiritual elitism or becoming more or better or stronger or bigger, but it really is to help us love, that we can love more freely and that we can enjoy life in God more. It's fueled by the Holy Spirit and grounded in word, sacrament, and community. That's, that's as good as I think as it's going to get for me. I was really aware today, too, and, you know, Ian, you challenged me to think about some Old Testament texts that have to do with spiritual formation, because most of mine are New Testament. But even what you were talking about, the general principle about how we avoid being shaped and challenged by Scripture as a whole, that's really the way that I think the Word, the entire uh, Old and New Testaments, as we take them seriously and we let them interpret us, as opposed to us interpreting them, that's spiritual formation. The other thing that came up for me um, between last night and the last 24 hours and now is I had more people want to talk to me about mental illness in the church than almost anything else I said. And you know how that is when you preach a sermon. You never know the certain things that, that you're going to say that just somehow the Spirit will just bring that, stir someone else up to say, I so want to hear more about that and I want to talk more about that. And so just to put that out there, I think people are really hungry for some work to be done on what do we do with people that have all different types of disabilities, including psychiatric disabilities. One thing from being at Fuller and being now a person who's in senior leadership who's a clinical psychologist, there are lots of times that, um, as, you, as you I'm sure know, people come to Fuller who, who get admitted to Fuller and they are not well mentally, and it begins with the stress of a graduate school education. What's been kind of simmering gets pushed up to the surface. And there still are not great resources for these students. Even though we have a school of psychology, you know, most of the students are not well trained yet, and they really can't handle more serious types of psychopathology. And the professors are so dang busy doing all of what they're doing, they're, they don't have a lot of room to see people. So they've been, we're really working on what to do um, all the way up to the admissions process, which is a very interesting question. I think it's both, it's the same question I think we're asking about the church. How do we admit people with psychiatric disabilities, just like we would a person with a physical disability, recognizing that we're going to need to make as a community some accommodations for that? as opposed to saying, well, if this person has this psychiatric disability, I don't think they're really fit for graduate level education. 
because in that way we're ending up kind of Xing out a lot of people from our community. The same thing in a church, but recognizing as we open and include people with disabilities, it will mean there's going to be tension, there's going to be um, money's going to need to be spent, people are going to need to be educated, things are going to be messy. It's not going to be easy, it's not going to be smooth, but it, is it worth it? I, I think it's absolutely worth it to work on that. Um, I went to a conference about disabilities and 67% of all students with psychiatric disabilities do not make it through graduate school. That's more than any other type of disability. It's, it's most difficult for people that have psychiatric disabilities to stay engaged. Part of it is because of community. You know, one, one uh, Fuller student, a, a brilliant person who came to study ancient languages, Semitic languages, um, he ended up getting admitted to a hospital because of he was very actively suicidal. And as I talked with him and heard more, you know, it's very hard because he was needing more support from his roommate. His roommate was studying for finals, ended up saying to him, I'm so sorry, I can't listen to you. And this person who did not have a good relationship with their own family ended up feeling more and more isolated. So it's hard. It's, there are not easy answers to this. But one thing I wanted to say for people that are more interested, um, there's a woman named Carol Wills, and that's Carol with an E at the end, Carol Wills, W-I-L-L-S, of NAMI. And anyone who's interested in mental health understands NAMI, the National Association on Mental Illness. It's a fabulous organization. And she's written a lot on, the title of it is called The Church's Voice, on mental illness. And if you just Google that, Carol Wills, the church's voice on mental illness, um, you can also go to mentalhealthministries.net. That's a website. There's a fabulous piece she's written there where she gives over 60 different resources for thinking about this very topic. Um, resources for faith communities, for pastoral caregivers, and the general public. Um, Actually, one of the best books that's in there that I saw, this kind of goes with our theme, was written by a person named John Swinton, who's a lecturer in practical theology at King's College at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. And it's called Resurrecting the Person, Friendship and the Care of People with Mental Health Problems. Isn't that a great title? Resurrecting the Person. So in line with what I'm saying about spiritual formation as well, the spiritual formation of people, of all people, I believe is not so much going to be a program that we're going to discover. It's not going to come from a book that you're going to read that's going to lay out a Bible reading plan or a prayer plan. It's going to, be, it's going to happen, number one, in a very intentionally relational way. It's, and it's going to happen as you take that risk and open yourself up to letting God speak to you about what formation you need. Because the kind of formation I need to be formed into the image of Christ is very different than what you need. It's not a program. It's not a discipleship program. It's a relationship. Just like, think of the people, if you have these people, and I pray that you do, the people that you're closest to have taught you things about yourself, haven't they? Didn't, didn't we all like each other, ourselves, a lot more before we got married? or got into intentional community, I thought I was a much healthier person. And it's in that crucible of deep relationship and the vulnerability of, are you there for me? Do you respect me? Do my feelings and ideas matter as much as yours? Do you care more about me than your work? 
It's in all those kinds of really big, deep, and important questions that the most vulnerable parts of me that need to be healed get exposed. That's again, it, and it, that's why I love this idea that sitting in contemplation in the presence of God does some of the very same stuff that being in an intimate relationship does. It exposes us. It exposes us. And so many of us avoid that. We run away from that. We don't want that. We say to ourselves, or we even say out loud to people sometimes, I just don't go there. I'm not that kind of person. I'm fine with who I am. One of the things I'm most excited about that I've been working on in spiritual formation at Fuller is our mentoring program. And I now have about 60 mentors. And that's something that I want to put out there. Um, we're always looking for people, alums and other people, that would like to be in relationship with a Fuller student. Um, either regionally, because we've got students now that are all over, online students. And also, um, more and more mentoring is also happening online that um, I've developed the this, this six sessions of mentoring sessions. What we do is we actually have a grant and we pay these mentors to meet with Fuller students. We try to have them in their first year after they've completed one of our new spiritual formation courses. We've got four now that are required for every uh, master's and MDiv student to take at Fuller. And after they've taken one, they can have a, what we call a first year discipleship mentor. And I've designed six, they, they meet for six months for 90 minutes with a student. And there are six different topics. And I tell the mentors, I want you to go about, and I don't want this to be a script by any means. I want you to pay attention to the student, be present to the student. But I want you to try to engage them in conversation on these six topics over these six months. Because I also believe spiritual formation sometimes is called out of us. Like sometimes I don't really even know what it is I need. Lots of times I don't know what it is I need. And it's someone else, someone else's questioning, someone else's wise observation of me that even helps me get in touch with that. So we look at questions of how, going deeper with their own story. Many people come to Fuller and they really don't have any idea how the story that they come from. I said a little bit about this last night. Why are you feeling called to ministry? What was your family like in terms of what did you begin to understand about God, about power? about race, about gender, about taking care of yourself, about community. These kinds of things that impact the way that any people in leadership are going to navigate a life. That success in ministry is so much more, as much as I absolutely, I thrived this morning listening to Ian. And we need that in seminary. Ac excellent academic biblical knowledge. Many of you sitting even in this room, I mean, I've heard some people say to me, when I graduated from seminary, I was academically prepared for ministry. But I didn't know how to handle the conflict around a session table. I didn't know how to manage my family's needs and the demands of a church plant. And so we're trying to figure out, you know, how can we talk about these things that are really about shaping a life? not just being filled up with knowledge that's so important. I don't mean in any way to diminish that. It's so necessary, it's just not sufficient. Back to this idea about mental health for one, one more idea. I wanted to tell you one more story. Um, in this, we've, we've just begun this thing. We did our first annual last lecture at Fuller. Have any of you heard of, like at UCLA, they began this in the 50s where they ask a professor to say, what would you say at your last lecture? And we just began this at Fuller, and we let the student body vote which professor they would like to have come and give their last lecture. 
and it was it was wonderful. Our first one uh, it was a school of uh, psychology professor, Jim Furrow, and the most poignant thing that he talked about was his son's serious depression, and how as someone I think the number he had he mentioned he said I think over my lifetime I've spent ten thousand hours sitting with people in therapy rooms, and I couldn't do anything to help my own son. But what I realized my son needed was for me to stop trying to fix him and change him and to love him as his dad and to sit with him and just listen to him. And again, I want to say that to all of you helpers like me that want to fix things. This idea that spiritual formation is not, it's not necessarily a program. It's not something you're going to even come in and bring an outline. But sometimes it will absolutely be that simple. Think for a minute right now about who or what would you say has most powerfully spiritually formed you. I want to just give us a little bit of time for you to think about that in your life. What or who shaped your passion for Christ, shaped what you're doing, an experience that was a watershed. Henry Nouwen says that all spiritual formation comes from suffering and prayer. Other people say suffering and love. I like that a little bit more. I actually think that really meaningful prayer is also a lot like love. But I think of the experience for me of going through a divorce. I'm from a family where every single member of my family had been divorced at least once. My grandmother had been married five different times. And when I became a Christian, I made a vow that I was never going to get divorced. I was going to change this legacy in my family. I, I was going to help change our family history so we'd become a family of people that stayed married forever. And when it became clear to me that my marriage was slipping through my fingers and I would wake up in the middle of the night and instead of waking up, normally what I've tried as a prayer practice, this happened the first time I was in spiritual direction, my director said, I want you to try, as soon as you're aware of being conscious in the morning, to say, Abba, Father, I belong to you. So that's been a practice that I've done in my life. But during that period of time, I would wake up in the middle of the night and literally, without thinking it, a swear would, word would come out of my mouth. Not Abba, Father, I belong to you, but a word that I wouldn't want to use right now because I'd get mail about it. <laughs> but that's, that's where I was. I was so unhinged. I was so disconnected from that source of shalom and belonging. I was so afraid. I was panicked. I felt like such a failure. But as I look back now, my, hus my first husband and I were both on staff at the time at First Presbyterian Church of Hollywood. Very public. Very painful. But what I realize now, I have a freedom. It's part of why I feel so free to be very transparent and vulnerable now when I speak. Because I really was aware how much I was a people pleaser and how attached I was to how people viewed me. And when you publicly go through something like that, there's a lot of pain, but there's an enormous amount of freedom that comes as you kind of pass through that fire. 
where I really recognized that I could lose all of that. I had no idea. I remember the day I took off my wedding ring and I was driving to my office and I thought, no, none of my clients are going to want to see me anymore. Who wants to go to marital therapy with a therapist who just took her wedding ring off? I'm going to lose my clients. I, I resigned from the staff because I didn't feel that it was a time for me to be in leadership at the church. So I wasn't a member of the staff. I thought I was going to lose... Uh, all my clients. I had no idea how my two precious children were going to man manage and navigate this. I just thought, I just think I've just about lost everything. But it's in those experiences of staying connected to God and staying connected to two friends that I met with every Friday for two hours. We called it the beginning of our Sabbath. We would come together at my friend Anita's house. We'd put our kids in the backyard and tell them not to come in unless someone was bleeding. And we would light a candle and we would sit for 20 minutes of quiet and just breathe as we would just kind of begin being together. And then different things would happen. Sometimes we would read from our journals. Sometimes we'd read scripture. Sometimes we'd pray together. As Beth, one of the women, was suffering from metastasized breast cancer, we'd cry together. But we were in our lives together in God's presence every single week and that, I felt like they flanked me and they held me. And I moved through all the loss and the pain of that to a place of incredible freedom. And then as God brought a new relationship, brought Mike into my life, there was a whole other story of unbelievable redemption that I didn't think was possible. So that idea of suffering, I'm sure many of you thought of times like that, but also people. Just like I said before last night about Sister Patricia Bruno, the idea of just, you know, that whole idea, the, the glory of God as a human being fully alive. And if we go back to that verse that's been the, the cornerstone for me of spiritual formation, we with unveiled faces beholding the glory of God, that if we just behold each other living fully alive, that stirs up faith. That, you know, and that's one thing Mark Laberton has said to me. I'm so grateful for that man and for his um, leadership at our seminary, and I get to report to him, and I get to learn from him. And he said, Laura, I really see this happening much more by infusion than anything else. And so that may frustrate you engineer types and business types and people that want a strategy and a plan and goals, but I actually think that's more of what love really feels like. I don't think we can strategize or plan that. I've had to work with a lot of couples where I'll have a husband or a wife come in that are getting married and they have their goals for their life and they have their objectives of what their relationship is going to be like. Remember one parent who came in once and they had a page front and back in very small print of all the things they expected of their children with regard to obedience. And when they handed it to me, I just very gently just kind of... and told them, this is the problem. So we can't parent like that. I don't, oh, God, I haven't finished that page yet. <laughs> and oh, this is also why I don't have PowerPoint. I'm a legal pad, and yeah, so. Okay, so I wanted to talk a little bit tonight about this idea of spiritual formation in the trenches. And again, going back to my favorite verse, my New Testament verse, I'm going to find an Old Testament one by tomorrow night that I'm going to be really using. 
but the one that I'm, I'm, I'm very attached to right now, this idea first, just like I just mentioned that with my two friends, Beth and Anita, they were my we who got me through and helped me be formed. Without them, my suffering would not have formed me. Suffering doesn't always form us for good. I mean, that's one of the things I've learned in, in my 26 years as being a therapist. I could see people in my office who would have gone through relentless waves of trauma and abuse. And they're sitting before me somehow open, humble, wanting to love, gentle, grateful. And then there'll be someone who maybe didn't get into medical school. And they always wanted to be a physician and they didn't get into medical school. And now here they are sitting in front of me at age 63 and their whole life has been overshadowed with this sense of failure and disappointment and regret and shame and despair. Whole life. And so what we do, what we do with that stuff that we can't help, big and small, is one of the most important parts of your own formation. And so even as you look at that now, what have you done with the suffering that's been put in your life? How many of you know that essay by Beekner, The Clown in the Belfry? That's in that book, The Clown in the Belfry. It's called um, Adolescence and the Stewardship of Pain. That's the name of the essay. Oh, my word. That, if, Beekner, he was at Exeter, and this was a commencement address he gave eighth graders. I bet none of these eighth graders had any idea who was standing in front of him. And this incredible essay, but he, he, or this commencement address. But what he talks about is how um, when we're little kids, what we do with our pain is we're very resilient. You just can have a cupcake, you can have a kiss, you can watch your favorite TV show or have a hug from your puppy and the pain's gone, right? Little kids can bounce back in this amazing way from pain. But once adolescent hits, and what Beekner says is we begin to move from childhood into adulthood. All of a sudden, what we do with our pain is very different. And in fact, that's actually what adulthood is measured by, what we do with our pain. And he uses examples like in Great Expectations of Miss Haversham, who stands for the whole rest of her life after being jilted at the altar. Remember that in her decaying wedding dress? like that person who didn't get into medical school. And how we move into genuine and what I would call spiritual adulthood is learning what to do with our pain. And he takes a liberty to do some exegesis of the parable of the talents. And he says, what if what's being given out, the, you know, the traditional exegesis of that is that we're all given gifts by God and it's our responsibility to use the gifts that God's given us. What if we twist that a little bit and say that in a similar way, pain is also allowed by God in different measures. And I'm sure we all know that. We know some people who seem to have just skated through life with hardly anything. And other people have had enormous waves of pain. So if we look at that parable and we kind of allow our mind to kind of open up a little bit and say, okay, so different people are given different amounts of pain. And what do they do with this pain? What three of them do is they go into the marketplace. And what Beekner says about that that I love is that we are to take our pain into a place where we're around other people and trade it. I trade my pain with you, and you, pay, you trade your pain with me. I will listen to your story, and you listen to my story. And I will learn from what you went through as you battled cancer, and you'll learn what I've gone through. You'll learn from me as I tell you about a divorce, and I tell you about being a stepmom. 
and I'll learn what it's like to have depression. And you'll learn from me what it's like to have a sister died of alcoholism. And we share our stories and we share our pain and actually something grows that's about the kingdom. And even more comes. And the person who ends up going to the place of the gnashing of teeth takes the pain and tries to go bury it on the back 40. And in typical Beekner style, he says, before you're too quick to judge that poor fellow, think about how many times we do the same thing. But that spiritual formation, taking whatever it is that's been given to us and not being ashamed, that's a lot of what we're really going to focus on tomorrow is this concept of shame because that's really the emotional crux of what keeps us from being able to live like this. Keeps us from being able to say, I'm really afraid my church is dying I don't know if I want to be in the ministry anymore. I don't know what else I would do. My marriage is crumbling. And you have a chance right now during these days to have some wonderful conversations like that. You have a chance, maybe not in the bigger group, maybe it's too tender or private to talk about in the larger group, but you have a chance to find someone that you know is safe and say, can we go on a hike? I really need to talk. And it is in that risking that formation will happen. That is exactly where growth will happen. That's where God can get involved in whatever it is that's happening and begin to help you look at what it is God has for you in that. So finding our we... Okay, where I have to figure out what page I'm here. Well, I want to say one more thing about the we. The we of the Presbyterian Church has been radically changed, hasn't it? And I'm even feeling that the we of this conference has radically changed. You know, I've had a couple of people say to me, I used to have friends that came here that aren't here anymore. Or someone said to me, because I stayed in the PCUSA, why did you stay on the dark side? And so there's been divisions. And I don't know exactly what to do about that even in this context, but if we don't talk about it, even if we don't talk about it amongst each other, it's just going to stay and be like a cancer. As painful as it is, we have to face it and talk about that and try very hard not to make those kind of judgments of one another. But listen to each other's story. Why did you stay? Why did you leave? Help me understand. We have a new director of the Brem Center for Theology, Worship, and the Arts, Mako Fujimura, who's a, an amazing human being and a painter. And he has written a book called Culture Care, and it's along these themes where he said he has been so aware of culture wars that are so prominent, and we're seeing them so much in the whole political arena, but it's so much in the church as well where there's these lines that are divided and you're here and I'm there and there's this war between people. Who's right? Who's wrong? Who's more spiritual? Who's more secular? And he said instead what we have to do is what he calls culture care. And he uses the end of the fifth chapter of Matthew. And I wish it was an Old Testament verse, darn. But, <laughs> but he... he he says that this part of loving your enemies at the end, li listen to the progression of these three chunks of this pericope. This is um, Matthew 5, 43 to 48. 
You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, sons and daughters of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And what he said is that he had never connected these three things together. Love your enemies. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. And be perfect. That this is a, a big part of what it even means to be perfect is to be loving those that we disagree with. So what I would say is, as, as we're thinking about spiritual formation, of course, the first place we have to start is with ourselves. Where do you need to be formed? Who is it that you need to listen to? What is it that you need to work on to expose? Where do you need to be transparent? Who is your we? I'm going to stop in a little bit for questions here, so I think I'm just going to do um, one more little part, and this is the part about God's glory. Um, As we unveil our faces, and we're with our we, and we're beholding God's glory, that part of spiritual formation, you know, I've, I've been thinking about what is God's glory? And I would love to have these, you know, educated, thoughtful, theological minds. If you're brave enough just to tell me how, if a parishioner asked you or someone asked you, what is God's glory? How would you define that? Anyone brave, ready to shout out something? Yes. What is God's glory? Okay, relationship, companionship with God. And, okay. Any Hebrew scholars that know about that word Chabad? Okay, what, what would weight have to do with glory? And Ian, you're free back there to stand up and shout out an answer if you have one. When, when I think of weight, I think of kind of what is something made of. And so it's almost similar, I think, to what you were just saying about that sense of relatedness. Like, what are you made of? The weight, the richness. The... Can you say it loudly? Okay. Neither am I. There's something very solid about that. So gravitas, the weight, the centrality, the, what, the bigness something that's valuable. And, and I think our challenge is to take these wonderful concepts and these truths and images and think how to relate them in very embodied kind of ways. Like, as we think in spiritual formation, if we're being asked to behold God's glory, how do I behold weight? How do I behold richness? How do I behold something that is solid and precious and costly? Because I do think a lot of times our faith has stayed in this more conceptual kind of way. 
And that's one whole part of spiritual formation too, is recognizing we have to get those concepts into some way that we actually can see and taste and feel and talk about. One idea, I don't think this is at all, um, it's just another idea out there. I think there's something about glory that has to do with beauty. Beauty shapes us. I mean, I'm sure a lot of you have had that experience. It's, it's why so often a lot of inner city neighborhoods, there's a real push to try to bring green spaces and beauty. Beauty changes things. Beauty changes the way people see life. Why hospitals are very careful about artwork and color and windows. Because can you imagine recuperating from an illness in a room that's a really kind of gross, minty green like icky green color, you know, with, with no, no beauty, and what it would be like instead to be sitting with a large window that looked at mountains or the ocean. There's something about beauty that is absolutely about God's glory. And again, I think that one of the most powerful aspects of beauty is what we can see in each other's lives. But people don't always go there with each other. There's incredible beauty in the way we respond to suffering. There's incredible beauty when we let each other see our vulnerability. That's something that people will say to me all the time after I speak. Is wow, you're so brave. I can't believe you can be vulnerable and talk about your divorce and talk about this and your insecurities. But what I've really realized is every single time, people will let me know, I'm so hungry for that. I long for that. Well, you can be that way. I mean, that's one thing Brene Brown says who talks a lot about vulnerability. People love when other people are vulnerable. <laughs> they like to be around other people who are vulnerable. But I tell you, it is absolutely the pathway to a lot of what we're talking about here of kind of a freedom and being able to see these things that have happened in our lives as God's gift and even to look for beauty. So in your context, spiritual formation in your context, letting yourself think, where right now is there suffering in my life? Where are my struggles? Who is my we? Or do I need to really be actually praying about God helping me create a we so I can take my struggles into that kind of context? And what am I beholding? You know, one... Um, story that I want to share as we finish today. Um, probably the most uh, difficult thing that I've had to work through in terms of watching God form me as well through suffering, besides uh, my divorce, was a very, I had a very difficult, I have a difficult relationship with my mom. Like I'm sure there are other people in this room who've struggled with their moms. And I have too. And what I experienced was that when my sister died of alcoholism when she was 33, I never said this out loud to my mom, but I have harbored it in my heart. I blamed her that if she had done X, Y, or Z, this would not have happened to my sister. And I had expectations for my mom to be a certain way that she wasn't. And I began to compare myself and what a better mother I was than my mom. And, oh, I didn't happen to tell you this, is that I actually wrote my dissertation on forgiveness before a lot of these issues even came to the forefront. I wish that I had spent, you know, people often research something that God ends up using, late, like later in their, I wish I'd like researched the, the habits of the most deliriously happy human beings on earth or something, but 
But the thing that I realized is as I knew about forgiveness in my head, I read about forgiveness all the time in scripture. I would pray on my knees before my mom's visit, God, please fill me with your spirit. Help me to be gentle to my mom. Help me to only focus on those things that are lovely and good about her. Just, just keep my mouth shut. Help me, God. But it would be three minutes after my mom would come in the door and boom, something would happen. And I prayed and I repented and I prayed. But what really happened, what really helped me turn the corner was when I got remarried to Mike. And when I had that quality of love being poured into my life that I had never had before, that's the part where besides suffering, the way that love transforms us. When I had someone loving me in a way I had never been loved, I was able, you know, in that way, as I have loved you, love others. I experienced God's love through Mike's love in a way that allowed me to love my mom and forgive my mom in a way that just was totally miraculous to me. And now I'm going to go visit her in a few days. She lives in Pacific Grove and I'm going to sit in her apartment and I will listen to her and I will have love in my heart for her and grace. And I have let her off the hook and I am so grateful that I'm getting to enjoy these last years of her life without this self-righteous anger I was holding. And it's peaceful. And it's not an intimate relationship. It's certainly not the one I would have ever longed for. But it's good. It's really good. And so again, those places where we're stuck, where we're not being formed, that's the other reason why we have to recognize we need to be experiencing deep love in order for us to make those movements in our life. And if we're not making those movements in our life, what are we even doing talking about trying to bring it to our church? So tell each other your glory stories. Tell each other your suffering stories. Take risks, even this, in these few days, to say something to someone that may feel really scary. That is exactly where growth is going to happen for you. I mean, think of that image again of Beekner, people taking the pain that God's allowed to be in their hands and taking it into the marketplace as opposed to burying it in the back out of fear. And I believe that that spiritual formation that will begin to happen in your life, just as I've heard from people on these last few days, I really believe this. There's a certain kind of spiritual formation that's right for your people and your context that is going to be different than what would be right for someone else. And if you're in that place where that formation is happening and your intimacy with God is growing and there's a sense of grace and freedom, you're going to ha and you're with other people and you're praying about that together, it will come for you in your context. I really don't, you know, the, the part of a lot of church ministry where people will take what someone else is doing very successfully and then bring it to their church. You know, so-and-so has this great ministry or this great book, and so we're going to get the DVD series, and our whole church is going to do that. Well, sometimes that might be great. But other times, that was great for their church. And who is your we? Okay, in closing, I just want to tell one more story. Um, there's a woman at Fuller, and her name is Moira Mawindo, and she was a physician in Malawi. And she is an amazing woman who left her practice in Malawi to come to Fuller for theological education because she wants to integrate scripture and she wants to integrate theology into her work as a physician in a deeper way. And I learned so much from Moira. And Maura came to my office one day and she said, Laura, will you help me set up something that I want to call Mezzamojo? 
And I said, sure, what's mezamojo? And she said, that's for Swahili at one table. And at Fuller right now, one of our places of pain, like in lots of places in the country, there's a lot of tension around race. There's a lot of tension that there are no, not one, African-American male professors of theology. And a lot of students that are there that are African-American will say, there's no one I can look to to help me understand what it is to be an African-American male in the church. And there's a lot of you know, ramification of what's been happening in our country with Ferguson and with Charlotte, understandably. There's a lot about immigration, um, being in LA, that there's lots of tension about immigration. So there's lots of race discussions. And what Moira said is, I want to have some dinners. And I want to have them in a faculty home. And I want to have it be just eight people. And we're going to have faculty invite these other people to their home. And every person's going to bring some kind of a food from their tradition, something. And we're going to sit at the table and we're going to eat each other's food. And we're just going to tell a story about that food and what it means to us and then see where it goes. And so this idea, again, of who is the we and how can we nurture that we and not even have maybe a panel discussion on race, but let's sit down and bring a recipe that's from your family's tradition and tell me about your grandmother. Or tell me about the celebration of Easter in your home and begin that. That's something so simple that you could do in your churches. To begin helping people just even create that sense of we and listening to one another as opposed to a program. Okay, let's have questions now, and I'm, I am also really open if people want to push back and say that this sounds like something a psychologist came up with, and it's way too touchy-feely, and isn't going to work at all for my own church. So let, let me have some questions or any kind of comments or discussion. And we're going to end at 8.30? No, you got it. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, thank you very much. I've enjoyed your presentation. Um, I wrestling with this idea of the unveiled faces and authenticity in communities. I think about some of our folks. Maybe they're going to they're in and out of recovery of addictions, alcohol, okay. pornography, whatnot, and so they're going to these groups where, hey, I'm an alcoholic, and you're very much yourself, or I'm a porn addict, or I'm or I'm recovering from you know I've got domestic violence, whatever. I think. And then they go to church, and it's like not okay to talk about that, and it feels like this right. fake environment. At the same time, I think it would be really unhealthy and kind of weird if everybody all over the church was sort of all their guts hanging out all the time. You know, so I oh, as Wait, a, wait, why would that be weird? Well, I'm kind of wondering about that, and I think it has to do kind of with boundaries. Okay. And the question is, how much can I sort of share all of my struggles with like 30 or 40 or 50 people. Because I've kind of said, you need to have one or two or three or four brothers and sisters in Christ that you can really share at a deep level. And then on the patio, I don't expect tremendous authentic community there. But, I, but if you don't have some people you can share with, I think that's a problem. And then I think also for myself as a pastor, I'm going to share some of my hurts and pains yeah. and sorrows. I'm not going to go down to level 10, but I'm going to be at a, a five, six, seven, eight once in a while over my mom on hospice or my granddaughter's seizures or my, you know, doubts about whatnot. And, but I just, I was curious about what you think about the unveiled thing and does a healthy community, is that where all 
275 people are sort of, <laughs> you know, constantly sharing their struggles? Or is it that I have two or three people I'm real with and the rest of you I put on a happy face and I'm kind of fake? Yeah. Like, like I don't okay. know the answer. I'm, I'm asking a question, okay. really. Yeah. Well, it makes me think in January I was at the Calvin Institute for Worship. And by the way, I had not heard of that before I was at Fuller. That is a great conference. For anyone that's interested, it's put on by the Christian Reformed Church primarily at Calvin, but they have amazing resources. It's in the last weekend of January in Grand Rapids, which is not a great time to go to Grand Rapids, but it is a fabulous uh, conference. And when I was there, I was doing a workshop on um, how is worship spiritual formation? And I was talking about this idea, and someone stood up and said a kind of a question similar. And, and what he said was, don't you think if people try that, there's going to, you know, how do you avoid a face plant? That, that's how he put it. And, and what I said back is I said, I actually think that's the wrong question. Because I don't think avoiding face plants should be what we're gearing towards. Because you probably will face plant at times. And I guess I think if you try to experiment and pray about how to shift the culture to have more, to have authenticity and transparency be a part of our culture, I do think it can get messy. I, I absolutely agree with you that boundaries are important and to have everybody sharing the most intimate parts of their life all the time. But it almost makes me think of stuff that Paul writes about in Corinthians about order. But I think we've gone so far the other way that we're so careful about not ever having anything embarrassing happen, about all of what can happen if people are real, that I would rather say, let's make mistakes on the other side for a while. And let's try. And, and again, I do think what you model as a pastor, and I think it's good that even as you were describing, I don't think people just need to hear, I don't think they just need to hear about your vulnerability about your mom and hospice. I really do think they need to hear about your vulnerability. And how do you, as a leader, grapple with your own shortcomings in the light of God's grace and providence. What is that like for you? Is it okay for people that are leaders to struggle? And again, not you're right. There has to be discernment. There has to be wisdom and maturity. An immature person does not know what to share when. But I think a mature person can really make choices and decisions that are both vulnerable and um, appropriate. But, and, and, I, and again, I, I don't think there's one way of doing it, but when you mention 12-step, I mean, I know many of you may, maybe that are either in the program or have that in your churches, so often people that are in 12-step say, why can't our church be like this? Why can't we create, why can't we create safety? Why are churches not safe places? That's a pretty huge question. Wow, that's really sad too. Why, why aren't churches safe places. I was, you know, as you were talking about glory, I was, um, I guess I, get, I was thinking about the irony of the fact that Paul says that Jesus set aside his glory in order to come among us and that that was the model of humility, a kind of unveiling that it seems to me is a model for us uh, in, in just Jesus walking among us in that. And, and if we need a theological justification to unveil ourselves and to, uh, I think he's given it to us. Yeah. Uh, in a different way of looking at glory. Yeah, thank So I appreciate you. that comment. I'm just a guy. You're just a guy? I'm just a guy. Uh, part of it is um, when we do expose ourselves, 
one of the men that works with me um, reacted all of a sudden when I was talking about depression. And, uh, and he really came unglued. And it was, it was all of a sudden I was like his dad. And so that's what it was bringing up is some stuff that he hadn't dealt with. Mm-hmm. And my vulnerability brought out stuff that he hadn't ever dealt with because his father wasn't vulnerable in that. And so it left him fearful of his position and of his life that he already went through some of this, but never learned how to deal with it as an individual. Yeah. And so now all of a sudden my vulnerability uh, brings out in, uh, in others, and that's a good way to begin that conversation with them, and that I'm not... I'm not going around um, hitting the sink yet, you know, yeah. hitting the, but that that vulnerability was really what's keeping me um, going. Well, and, and I think that I think this person here, um, not only as I'm talking about this kind of authenticity and unveiling phase, that's this biblical um, description of spiritual formation and spiritual growth, but it will improve every relationship that you have. You know, the, the book, I'm sure many of you have read that book, um, Five Dysfunctions of a Team. And this is something that's recognized in all kinds of business principles. They, the, his main thing is that a healthy team is based on vulnerability, vulner, yeah, vulnerability-based trust is the foundation of all healthy teams and that a leader has to model that. If a leader can't say at, at the head of the table, you know, I feel really um, uncomfortable with my sermon that I preached, or I'm really nervous about this, or I don't think I did this very well, or I'm not sure I planned for that enough. If a leader can't say that, and how many of you have ever been around leaders that say stuff like that? People in power very often don't say things like that. But if the person in power never says that, then no one else sitting around the table is going to feel safe to say that. And so rather than have a creative kind of safe, um, innovative way to share ideas and to encourage each other and to learn from each other. People end up editing, they edit, they only say what they think is acceptable. The whole life of the room goes down the toilet and you, you can't be creative. You, you, you're cutting out intimacy, creativity, encouragement, let alone the Spirit of God. And so it's a huge principle for people that want to live life fully is this idea that editing out the failures and the things that are difficult do nothing but suck the life out of you and the people around you. I mean, in, again, in my, in my, I know I always go back to being a therapist, but that's what I've done for so long. So much of what I helped people do that were in trouble in marriages was learn how to talk, to look at each other honestly in the eyes and say, I'm really afraid you don't love me anymore. You know, I'm, I'm really afraid of this, or this is really hard for me. And because and if you can talk about stuff like that, almost everything can be worked on. The reason that relationships break apart is people end up not being able to talk about it anymore. Or at church staffs, you can't talk, if you can't talk about it, you can't fix anything. 
And so it's such an important principle. So, you know, honestly, I do think what you're saying is important, that there needs to be wisdom and discernment and boundaries, but let's try. Let's try. I mean, we all know, I mean, one way of thinking about it, testimonies are a way that people often, and, and look at the life that usually comes in church when someone gives a testimony. Okay, I, and there's some, you wanted to say something. Okay, then we'll go back there. When you were talking about uh, a definition for glory and used the word beauty. Yeah, I love that. Uh, it reminds me of a book that recently came out by John Piper called A Peculiar Glory. Yes. And this is his definition. The glory of God is the manifest beauty of his holiness. And then he talks about God going public with it. Oh, Na I like that. Namely, Jesus as his, really, his glory. Wow, that's beautiful. As a, as a servant, as a servant leader. Yeah. And that's an important message for I all of us. I love that. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I have a question about suffering. In the New Testament, Jesus healed a lot of people who, according to the gospel writers, were demon-possessed. And so my question is, what, if any, relationship to demon possession is mental illness, addiction, and so on? Because we don't use that language today, but it mm -hmm. seems that many of the people Jesus healed had some of these issues. And then... There's the other question of genetic kinds of things or if they're genetic like Asperger's and autism and those kinds of disorders. Talk to me about that. <laughs> okay, well, that's like a really big question. Um, I do think that the ways that we see in the New Testament, that there was n not an understanding of mental illness at all. Um, I do believe that the enemy of our soul attacks all of us wherever we're vulnerable. So I think there certainly are ways that people that have a vulnerability, uh, mentally or emotionally, there can be involvement of something from, uh, you know, again, just the enemy of life, the enemy of our soul that wants to destroy and kill will attack. I don't think that most mental illness is caused by demon possession, though. I, I think that there are, you know, even more and more research, lots of mental illness has a biological basis to it. Not all of it does. Um, in terms of, like, when you're talking about genetic uh, depression, schizophrenia, not only just things like autism, you know, attention deficit disorder, most mental disorders have some kind of a genetic, genetic link. And so often healing, I mean, it's really talking about healing then healing of the body, healing of the mind. Um, and there are miracles that occur, but I think lots of healing that happens is not always in the certain kind of, a, of a illness being taken completely away. That is more a miracle. I mean, but I think as the body of Christ, we're, we're called to surround and comfort and heal in lots of different ways people that have suffering mentally and emotionally. Um, I don't, you know, I, I've been asked that question a lot. I remember I was even um, giving birth to my first child and I was um, like in a lot of pain and the labor and delivery nurse came in and said, I heard you're a Christian psychologist. Can you talk with me about demon possession and mental illness? <laughs> and I think I kind of became like a demon at that point and I, I embodied something. So it's a very, you know, I, I think the whole thing, being a Presbyterian too, I haven't really studied a lot about demon possession. Um, it's something that I know 
I absolutely know exists. I've experienced um, edges of that in clients that I've worked with. You know, Scott Peck's book, People of the Lie, is an amazing book that acknowledges the reality of evil that's different than even just mental illness. I just think God's grace and love, sometimes miraculous healing through the Holy Spirit, but I think always healing through the loving arms of the body of Christ is meant for any kind of suffering. I wanted to get back to the issue of authenticity and phoniness and safety and lack of safety. Um, my sense is that some of the perceived phoniness in church often comes from a misunderstanding of the concept you quoted earlier, which is being conformed to the image of Christ. I think a lot of people think that means I can't be myself. I need to be like my youth leader. I need to be like that great pastor. I need to be like the Apostle Paul. Or Jesus but I'm, Christ. Yeah, exactly. And so um, how do you help people with that? that? That is a great question. Thank you very much for that. I think that the being conformed to the image of Christ, what comes to my mind most is living in intimate communion with the Father. That we are not called to be Jesus Christ. We are called to be that person that God made us to be. And what I, again, would call my true self. And not distracted by all these other voices of what it means to be a powerful, intelligent, beautiful, wealthy, whatever that my culture has told me I am to be if I'm significant. That I'm to understand the gifts that God gave me and I'm to live in communion fully every day of my life. And that that's being, that's how I will, I will be living in the image of a, a life fully lived in God's presence with freedom and joy. Yeah, and it, that's, that's, what I would, that's what I would say. But that's a really good point that I think needs to be made a lot, that I think you're right. And that's something I'm going to talk about tomorrow. Tomorrow when I talk about the internal resistance to formation, I'm going to show you this triangle where it's our ideal self and our real self. And that spiritual formation happens in this gap between when we acknowledge the gap between who we really are and who we want to be and what we do with that realization. And I think that's, you know, as Christians, we often have like, okay, I'm supposed to be loving all the time. And, and then what happens with that reality? Yeah, thank you very much for that question. Um. Um, professional distance. Uh, every therapist has a certain professional distance from patients. And there's some of that that's just built into professional ministry. I think we've all had or heard stories of pastors who became um, re really kind of enmeshed in their congregation and then retired and then kind of remain a problem yeah. to that congregation. Would you say something about professional distance in the way that that works on this idea of uh, transparency and, okay. and vulnerability. You know, what comes to my mind when you say that is, is almost kind of shifting a little bit. Like pastors that become enmeshed in their congregations, to me, is not so much an issue of distance, although that, that's what you see on the outside. But what, I'm, what I believe is that that's a pastor who's getting his or her needs met by their congregation. And so to me, that's the issue, is that they are looking for affirmation, validation, intimacy, connection from the, those people rather than being a shepherd. So I, I think that, um, 
you know, again, there's the, there's the question, should you become really good friends with people in your church? Um, that's something that gets talked about a lot in terms of boundaries. I, I think that the real question is mental and emotional health. And you being a person who's working on your own health and you being able to discern that in people in your congregation. Because I do think it's possible to be close friends with people in your congregation who are mentally healthy and mature spiritually. I really do. And I think it can be a real gift to pastors. But I think if you get close to the wrong person, that can be a huge problem. But that's your maturity. That's what you have to be able to be able to discern um, and also to be able to know that even in that, there probably are still some boundaries that would need to be there as you are still their pastor. But, but again, so, so I guess professional distance, um, what would you say about Jesus' professional distance from the disciples? I, I would say he didn't need them at all. He didn't? Okay. And he got that strength from his relationship with the Father. He, he, I don't know if you heard this to repeat that, that Jesus didn't need the disciples. He was there to give to, the, give to them, not to receive from them. I don't know if I totally agree with that, but I guess I, because I think, you know, I think of him coming and asking them to pray. Um, and it feels like there was a real, if, if, I think if Jesus was fully human, I do think there were things that he needed. But I think that, again, there's not one box answer. I just think people that are emotionally and relationally working on their own issues, and I know that's kind of a, a psychology phrase, but I guess what that just means is continuing to look at who am I, what am I needing, who are the people I'm close to, and, and being aware of how much I'm leaning on you. I mean, that's true, I think, in any relationship. I think even in the most intimate of relationships, you want to be aware of what I'm giving and receiving. And, and from different people, there's going to be different things. But, but I do think there's ways that you can um, enjoy reciprocity without getting your needs met from your congregation. Again, there's a distinction there, I think. A couple other people that... I'm going to take a right turn and ask a generational question because I work with college students and young adults up okay. in Chico. And I made me think about this was your uh, conversation about formation with MDiv students. And I'm friends and a mentor to several students at Fuller, so I, I love working with them. Um, what do you see in emerging young adults and millennials that both makes them more open than previous generations mm -hmm. to spiritual formation that you're doing? And what are the obstacles that you observe also and how is that influencing your work with oh, incoming a, pastors at Fuller? That's a great question. And, you know, even kind of in addition to that, a friend of mine, Carrie Bear, who works with InterVarsity. Okay, Carrie. Carrie's working a lot on this. And we had a conversation not long ago. And she said, Laura, what does spiritual formation look like for someone who's 29 as opposed to a person who's 53? Like, wouldn't that be kind of different? What's, and again, that's that part where I think, again, it's not one formula. I think definitely spiritual formation has some um, components that would be general, but it is very specific. But I think to answer your question, you know, certainly a lot of millennials are being drawn into worship contexts and are, have a desire for a more liturgical, contemplative, um, there's more of an um, interest in some kind of ancient rhythms and practices that um, I think may be explained partially from the 
detached and kind of disintegration of a lot of aspects of society, a lot of lack of trust generally in authority. So there's kind of a going back to this ancient liturgy that's not based on a person or a personality. That's one of the biggest differences in churches that are more liturgical. It's not about the personality of the pastor. The sermon is not the main event. Like when Ian was talking about, in, there used to be a tradition that the expectation was the person would preach, the pastor would preach a great sermon every week. And in many churches, I think that's still a lot of what the focus is. And so it puts a real focus on that person and their preaching abilities. In a more liturgical context, and I think some millennials are more drawn to that, there's more of you know, praying prayers that have been written and prayed by people all around the, year, the world for hundreds of years. And there will be a homily, but the real focus is more the Eucharist than, you know, than there, it is the sermon. So I think there is something about not a focus on a person, because a lot of millennials have seen a lot of, um, they've been very um, disappointed in even church leaders and seeing what happens in, you know, how pastors have left churches and this has happened. It kind of just adds to the sense. I'm sure there are people in this room that would have a, a wonderful answer to that too, but I think some of the specific um, difficulties is that there is... Um, you know, sometimes there can be a, a self-focus in that generation a lot that, that is wanting it to work for them. There can be um, a difficulty, I think, with the concept, too, of the prolonged attention of contemplation and quiet prayer because there's such a, uh, you know, they're so on their devices all the time that that part of spiritual formation that takes space and solitude and margin. But I, but I actually find that once you get people over the hump, it's so nourishing. You know, um, there's so many different things I would have loved to do with this group, but maybe another time, it would be really interesting to actually do some spiritual practices together for those of you that haven't tried that, that very much. So... Does anyone else have an answer to that who actually works with millennials? Like, I'm thinking, Tony, I don't know if you have anything to say about this generation and why, what, why are they drawn more to spiritual formation or what are some of the obstacles to that? Does anyone else who works with millennials have anything they'd like to comment on that? I think part of it, though, is that the mic, there. I think part of it is, you know, they've watched technology, they've watched people coming into power, they've watched, you know, they've watched outstanding people enter into a powerful situation, whether it's a president or whether it's a, a church leader or whatever, and I think part of it, there's a sense of, um, a deeper sense that they're missing, and that there's a hole, that just power and authority and stuff, which yeah. a lot of it they, they don't get. I mean, the fear of, I mean, not that you don't comprehend, it's you don't receive it. You, um, I think about my, my family who thinks they're not going to be able to own the house that my parents owned. And um, they're not going to be able to have a job that's going to last 25 years and going up the ladder and being able to get. So there's a lot of things, and, and in, a, in a much better way, it's not that they're trying to just fill this hole that's, that's bad. They're really trying to say, we've seen it become dead end. 
And I think it's a real important conversation to have that what's, especially in a shaky economy and with people that we've trusted and people mm -hmm. that we've, I mean, I'm not too far from what they're thinking is, I mean, you know, from, from that as well. But yeah. I, I think there's just some stuff going on yeah. that they're not going to, that they see it and they also see the, uh, the man behind the curtain, you know, the uh, great and powerful Oz. And so they're looking for the magic, but they're also seeing it's the man behind the curtain. What I've experienced with many of the young because uh, it is interesting that the age of students coming into Fuller is actually declining. There's, there's a lot more younger students that are coming. And there is a hunger for mentorship. I mean, that's, that's what I really see. And, and, I, and I guess what I, what I see in that is I really do believe, although there are some differences from our generation, um, different, different ways we've been hurt, different ways our trust has been broken, at the core, I just think every single human being longs to be known and to be seen. And that that's, you, you do that differently with different groups of people. But that's really where I think spiritual formation begins is with figuring out, am I, am I creating ways that in my church people feel known and seen? Or am I herding them into programs? I, I think that's a big difference. Um, oh. Yeah. Hi, Kathy. Um, hi. <laughs> I met Kathy the first night. Yeah. So you know that I'm interested in spiritual formation and actively involved in my own um, development of unveiling and becoming. You know, someday I'm going to grow up. <laughs> what about this idea that um, spiritual formation happens on the margins? Um, I think it's really important to wrestle with that a little bit because not everybody right. is wired, called, uh, willing to go on that journey, and it's um, it's a hazardous journey, and it does get messy, right. and not everybody wants to go there. So when we look at our um, bringing this uh, unveiledness, having the masks off in our church, how do we do that respectfully for those people who are really creeped out by that? Yeah. Or just not. Or they're, they're frightened. They're, they're anxious. Frightened. Yeah. They're, they're very frightened. They've never seen it. They just aren't really, that's not what they're, where they want to go. Yeah. So I'd just be interested in what you had to say about that because I personally feel you're right. It happens on the margins. Well, I think of how many times, you know, Jesus will say things like for those who have ears to hear that clearly not everybody heard, not everybody saw. You know, there, there's so much even in the Gospel of Luke, Mark Laberton and I have been preaching through Luke in chapel, and he was saying in his last sermon on Luke was that throughout the whole book of Luke, there's this theme of seeing and not seeing, and he did the road to Emmaus last time, and all that, that in there where they saw Jesus, and they didn't know it was Jesus, and then they recognized him, and then he vanished, and through so many different stories in Luke, it's about seeing and not seeing, hearing and not hearing. So I do think there's a theme in scripture that that's true. I guess what, what I think about, though, Kathy, when you say that is, my first question, though, is what does it mean that some pastors aren't interested in spiritual formation in that deeper life? That's what I'm more worried about, is that there are some pastors that are saying that's not important. Or you know, I, then, then, then where is your spiritual authority coming from? Or where's the, where's the depth 
where's, where's the authenticity of what's being formed in you if that's not something that you're doing? So, so I certainly think that if the leaders aren't going there, there's not going to be very much. But even if a leader who's there, I do think that it's always invitation. I think just being able to recognize that, that if I'm living a life where I'm pursuing my own formation and I'm working on this day to day, I want to be an invitation and I want to be responsive to other people that seem hungry and invite them in. You know, in that spiritual sensitivity where I can recognize someone who's in a position of wanting more. I can't remember my new friend's name, but he, you were telling me about how you want to do a Bible study on the book of John. That's not a Bible study, but it's looking at how the gospel of John invites me into a way of life. So he's going to do a study on the book of John that way. People are going to come. Not everybody's going to go very deep with that, but I bet some will. And then kind of nurturing that. So I, I'm still working with that because my job is to put spiritual formation in the center of everything Fuller does, faculty, staff, and students. But I'm, I just keep thinking, I'm not sure that's going to work. Mm -hmm. I, but I'm going to try. I'm going to work on it. Yeah, thank you for everything you said. I uh, just want to push back on the margin thing a little bit, though. Push back on what? On the margins okay. that happens in the margins. Okay. Um, I, I tend to think that, like change, spiritual formation is always happening. Okay. Uh, sometimes in spite of ourselves. Certainly you could resist it. Um, but I just think, you know, there are, there are people who are just plotters in life, mm -hmm. and they're not going to go to those margin places. They're just going to plod... They're going to show up every Sunday. They're going to do what they're asked to do. They're going to be faithful. Mm -hmm. They're going to quietly love their wife and their family. And uh, nothing fantastic is going to happen. I, I think of my father-in-law this way. Yeah. He's an 88-year-old man. He's a Roman Catholic. He never misses Mass. Yeah. He plods through life, and he's the kindest, most generous person. Mm -hmm. And... You, there is some spiritual formation happening. It may not be the way we think of it sometimes, but I think something's happening. Absolutely. Yeah. But, but I guess what I would say, again, kind of almost like I've had to come to grips with my mom, that it was my self-righteousness that was really the biggest problem. And our relationship has been healed as I have been able to take off my agenda for her and love her for who she is and have compassion for her. But I still think there are places where my mom's lack of honesty, her lack of ability to connect deeply with me and other people is... A, is not living into the fullness of life that God would want for her. But it's not mine to judge that. And like when I, when I hear that about your father-in-law, this, this is my belief, is that I do think that God longs for more for us in life than that. I do. I, I think there's faithfulness there. There's goodness you're describing. And I would, I would, you know, would want to honor your father-in-law if he were in my life. But I, don't, I think that the intimacy of the Trinity... When even thinking about being formed in the image of Christ, I think it's intimate relationship that's really at the core of that. That intimate relatedness is at the core of what I think God longs for in our lives. And in your father-in-law, I don't know this or not, but you know, just from my perspective as a psychologist, he is out of touch with lots of parts of himself as a man. He's very faithful, he's dutiful, he's good, he's honest. But if, if a person's not able to feel anger, feel sadness, express fear. They're going to miss some levels of intimacy. 
that, to me, are a part of the richness that I believe God wants for us in the fullness of life. But, but, but how do we not judge someone and how do we appreciate the goodness that's there? And absolutely, yes, there's formation. And, and I think for all of us, all of our lives, we're, we're moving more and more. So I don't know what's going to happen in your father-in-law's life. I mean, sometimes things happen when we get a diagnosis, when someone we love, we, we might lose them. All of a sudden, something can open up. 